this. And who are you going to vote for? For Trump. And why? Because he he's going to help the military, and we're a military family. Now, pandemic uh, guidelines have uh, brought dramatic changes to the way the 2020 presidential campaign is playing out in the United States. Gone are the large-scale rallies and close-up encounters of 2016. Asian Americans are poised to play a pivotal role in the 2020 presidential election. According to the Pew Research Center, the demographic is the fastest-growing racial or ethnic group in the U.S. electorate. More than 11 million Asian Americans are eligible to vote this year. They'll make up nearly 5% of the nation's electorate. President Trump has been able to increase his Latino voters. That means Joe Biden cannot take them for granted. Both the Trump and the Biden camps are focused on three key states, Florida, Arizona, and Texas, where the Hispanic vote could decide the election. There's little doubt that immigration will be an issue many voters are weighing as they head to the polls in November. Because of the pandemic, I just don't want to go into a polling place. Over two-thirds of the U.S. voters will be able to make their choice by either mail-in or absentee ballot in the 2020 election, more than ever before in the history of the United States. More than 23 million naturalized immigrants in the United States are eligible to vote. That's about one in 10 eligible voters in the United States, a record high. The question is, will they turn out? Because if it chooses to turn out, not only can we decide this election, but we can decide the trajectory of where the country goes in the next 20 years. Hello and welcome to Immigration and Democracy. I'm your host, Dr. Jennifer Rossop. In this series, we'll bring you fresh knowledge and insights from the team at the Immigration Initiative at Harvard, led by our director, Professor Roberto Gonzalez, and featuring voices from the field. Join us as we get to know our neighbours through their stories. We wrap up this season of Immigration and Democracy with perhaps the killer question. What is the importance of the immigrant vote in US politics? How has it shaped trends historically? And what will it mean for this year on November 3rd? By immigrant voters, we mean naturalised US citizens. The immigrants who have been sworn in as US citizens and thus gained that all-important right to vote. Since 2000, the size of the immigrant electorate in the US has nearly doubled to 23.3 million. That's more than the total population of countries including Sri Lanka, Chile, Guatemala. The US immigrant population would be the 58th biggest country in the world by population size. Most of the 23 million immigrants who are eligible to vote in the 2020 election live in just five states, California, New York, Florida, Texas, and New Jersey. And this has important implications for tactical voting and their relative political clout. As immigrant-eligible voters have grown in numbers since 2000, their voter turnout rates in presidential elections have lagged behind those of US-born voters. In 2016, 62% of US-born eligible voters cast a vote. That was compared with 54% of foreign-born voters. Will this change come November 3rd? Like in 2008 was the first time my mother voted, but I was still underage. And then she said, oh, I voted for McCain, but I knew Obama would win anyway. And I'm like, what would have happened if McCain had won, mother? I was born in Durango, Mexico, undocumented for 18 years, then permanent resident for about six, and then I finally submitted my application to become a citizen. U.S. immigrant voters have diverse backgrounds. 
Most are either Hispanic or Asian, and immigrants from Mexico make up the single largest group, at 16% of foreign-born eligible voters. That's 3.5 million. Other main population groups are from the Philippines, India, China, Vietnam, Cuba, Korea, the Dominican Republic, Jamaica, and El Salvador. Including Mexico, these 10 birth countries account for about half of all immigrant-eligible voters. Two-thirds of these eligible voters have lived in the US for more than 20 years, and 63% are proficient in English. And where immigrant voters settle varies significantly across states. New York is super diverse, whereas Asian Americans make up 43% of immigrant-eligible voters in California. Of course, everybody's talking about this year's election. The COVID-19 pandemic is hitting US democracy in new ways. The security and reliability of mail-in and absentee voting is being debated by politicians as local elections and primaries show millions of people at six feet apart in face masks, taking great risks to be at the polls in person. Not only is immigration a main stake in this election, it's predicted that this year will see unprecedented numbers of immigrant voters. So what does that look like? And who are the immigrant voters? From Goya beans to talks of banning WeChat and TikTok, what efforts are both parties making to reach or disenfranchise immigrant communities and businesses? Today, we speak to Matt Barreto and Janelle Wong, two polling and immigrant voting experts, about their take on the nature, evolution and importance of the immigrant vote in this election, and what the wider landscape of political participation looks like for the US immigrant community. So Janelle and I are collaborating on the 2020 survey that we call the Collaborative Multiracial Post-Election Study. She and I have been running this in partnership with Lori Frazier, professor here at UCLA, since 2008. So it's a really exciting project. Every presidential year, we get together with a group of scholars studying race, ethnicity, politics, society, and we feel the large survey sample, very, very large sample of racial and ethnic groups. These groups are typically left out of some of the mainstream social science quantitative surveys. And so Janelle and Lori and I have been doing this, as I said, since 2008. And then this will be our fourth version of this in 2020. We're now collaborating with Edward Vargas, who's a professor of transborder studies at Arizona State. So it's nice to be able to get these large samples of immigrant communities and racial and ethnic minorities to look and see how they're feeling about some of the biggest issues facing our country. Matt Barreto is Professor of Political Science and Chicana Chicano Studies at UCLA and the co-founder of the research and polling firm Latino Decisions. The Huffington Post has said that he is the pollster that has his finger on the pulse of the Latino electorate. In 2020, Matt was hired by the Joe Biden presidential campaign to direct polling and focus group research for Latino voters. He's the author of books including Ethnic Cues, The Role of Shared Ethnicity in Latino Political Behavior, and Latino America, How America's Most Dynamic Population is Poised to Transform the Politics of the Nation. In addition to his research on Latino voting patterns, Matt has conducted extensive research on voting rights and served as an expert witness in Voting Rights Act lawsuits. In 2018, he co-founded the UCLA Voting Rights Project, and we're thrilled to count him among our national advisory body at the Immigration Initiative at Harvard. For people who aren't familiar, you know, what is polling? What are you doing? Are you asking people who they're going to vote for, why they're going to vote for them, what are the issues that matter to them? I always think, you know, the most basic is that it started with the Reader Digest poll way back in the 20s and 30s, where they would include questionnaires in Reader's Digest, and they would ask people who were reading it to fill it out and send it back in. And they asked them those exact questions. Who do you plan to vote for in the election? What are the most important issues to you? 
And eventually we started to figure out ways to make sure that that sample was representative. It wasn't only people who read one magazine, but everyone had an opportunity to participate. And as long as you take that approach of an inclusive and representative sample, we think that there's a lot you can learn in terms of not just who someone's going to vote for. That might end up being the most boring question at the end of the day, but what motivates people? Why are they involved in politics? Why do they join social movements? Why do they protest? Why do they sit out and not participate? And so we ask a lot of those types of questions, not just questions about politics, but all of you know, the way people engage society and engage each other. We've been working with panel vendors. We've been creating some of our own subject pools. Uh, we're reaching out to people who have expertise in different communities. In 2020, we're adding oversamples of Muslim Americans, Native Americans, Black immigrants. So we're going to have a lot of new and additional samples. So we've been working with scholars who are in those fields to help us. So we're very excited about the 2020 effort because it's going to be the most diverse and the largest sample that we've done in this project. And what are you finding now? What are you hearing? Do you have some initial results from this outreach work? We do have some pilot tests and I've been doing not only through my work at UCLA, but through my work at Latino Decisions, including some additional collaborations with Janelle Long, by the way. We have been doing a lot of interviews of people of color. And, you know, we're finding that in this cycle, in this year, in what's confronting the country, Black, Latino, Asian American, Native American communities, they're really engaged. They're paying close attention and we're recording very, very high levels of interest in politics and in what's happening to our country and to our democracy. So if that continues, we're expecting a very, very high voter participation, not just us, but other scholars who are studying this are forecasting record participation rates. And we're trying to diagnose and try to figure out why and how and what is motivating people and what's bringing new voters out, what's causing people to take to the streets and demand that their issues are paid attention to. So a lot of the pilot testing we've been doing, a lot of the polling we've been doing over 2020 leading up to this election, I think is going to inform that work and is going to give us a very exciting project so that when this election is over, we can look back at all of the different data sets that have been collected to help us piece together you know, what will end up being a very historical election, given all of the issues facing our country today. And in 2014, you co-authored the book Latino America, How America's Most Dynamic Populations Poised to Transform the Politics of the Nation. What is the importance of the Latino vote in particular, and how does their political engagement as a community compare with the political participation of other racial and ethnic minority groups in the United States? Yeah, so that was a book project I did with Gary Segura, who's the uh, dean of the Luskin School of Public Affairs, and he's my research partner in Latino Decisions. He and I had been collecting a lot of data on Latinos, but we hadn't stopped to sort of put it all together and write it up as a coherent story. And so in that book, we wanted to step back and look at the changes that had been taking place. We were sort of at a place in 2014 where Latinos were really now starting to be taken seriously by the political parties. You saw more Latino candidates, you saw more representation, and the population was growing dramatically. It was really transforming and changing the way politics was happening. And so that was part of the story we wanted to tell was just simply that demographic change, what was happening with Latinos and what was happening with the immigrant rights movement. You know, this is at a time where the immigrant rights movement was really at a peak. The 2013 compromise bill had failed on immigration reform. The uh, executive order on DACA had been in effect for about two years. And so these were issues that were really gripping the Latino community. 
And you know what we found was that Latinos were engaged just like anyone else, and they wanted the same thing that anyone else wanted, which was attention to their issues. They wanted to be taken seriously. They wanted to feel incorporated, that politicians were listening to them, and that they were addressing the issues in their community and in their family. Really, that was sort of a turning point where now I think you're seeing more and more politics is listening to Latinos, perhaps not exactly at the rate it should be, but it is listening to Latinos. We're starting to force our way into these conversations. You know, I think we tried to lay out a lot of that in the book, Latino America, and, you know, we're still working on that. Gary and I are still working on the same questions and the same issues we were addressing then. And what are the main issues that impact the Latino voters? What are the main topics that they're impacted by? It's not unlike the rest of the country. It's what's happening in your community. And it's episodic. You know, it ebbs and flows. And if we go back to the 2004 election and the 2006 election, when Gary and I first started really polling Latinos and doing serious surveys, it was the Iraq war. Latinos were disproportionately serving on the front lines in the Iraq war. And they were not sure which direction the war was going and high support for John Kerry in that election and all the way through the 2006 midterms. And now that issue is gone. Foreign policy is not dominating our space. You know, the policy agenda changed and suddenly immigration became a dominant issue. That dominated the landscape for about 10 years from 2006 or so, following all of those immigrant rights movements we saw in the 2006 spring all the way through about 2016 when that became a dominant issue as the Congress was trying to pass that bill. So the issues ebb and flow. Now today, not surprisingly, the single most important issue that people want to address, a government response to the coronavirus, more access to lower cost healthcare. And so Latinos are just like anyone else looking for issues to be solved in their community that are not being addressed properly. And so we do see that change you know, from election cycle to election cycle. And we've read a lot in the papers about how the COVID-19 pandemic has disproportionately affected ethnic minority and immigrant groups in the United States. So is this something that you think is having an impact on political participation among those communities? Certainly. We've been tracking that in some of the polls we've been doing this year. What we're finding is that early on in the pandemic, we were finding evidence that Latinos were disproportionately contracting the illness, that they were dying, that they were the first to lose their jobs. They were the ones to have to stay out at their jobs. So there was this double-edged sword of Latinos losing their jobs and having terrible economic impacts, but also being frontline workers and essential workers and being put in harm's way. At that time, all of the attention was focused on how to just survive and get through to the next a month. And we saw actually a dip, not just for Latinos, but for many folks in paying attention to the 2020 presidential election. And what was that about? Now, the longer the pandemic has gone on, the economic crisis, the health crisis, and now today, what are we talking about? The school crisis, school mm -hmm. reopenings, and how's that affecting our children and our families? It has become a very political issue. Latinos are looking at the 2020 election like many other people in the country, through that lens of the coronavirus and how has our government responded or where has our government failed. So we think that's going to continue to be a dominating issue and one that Latino voters are paying attention to, other ethnic minority voters are paying attention to, and they're going to want answers from elected officials. And when you talk about elected officials, I mean, to what extent, you know, are people thinking strategically? Is the political participation more of a local phenomenon or is it kind of something that's more part of a national debate? How do those two interact? It's definitely the case that in presidential cycles in the United States, especially in recent years, they have become just dominating of the coverage of the media attention. 
we have what is thought about as candidate-centered elections. So it's no longer about political parties like you see in places in Europe with parliamentary systems. And even those are transitioning to become candidate-centered. But we have real candidate-centered elections. And so that makes it harder for some of these local elections to cut through in a year like 2020. Now, if you go back to 2018, it was different. You know, people were looking at their members of Congress. Did they want to change who was in charge of the House and the Senate? They had state legislative contests. All of those things will be up again. But most of the attention for most Americans is really looking at the Trump versus Biden matchup. And so it can be more difficult if you're running for state legislature. That's an important job. It's important to get people out and make sure they find your name on the ballot. You might be the third, fourth, maybe the seventh person down on the ballot. And so it's harder to break through, but it's important that voters and candidates both take the time to try to connect on those more local or state issues, because oftentimes those affect people even more on a day-to-day basis was kind of really striking thinking about how people vote what motivates them and you know what a non-rational thing it so often is for all of us there's no doubt about that it's a very emotional way that people react and interact with their candidates their parties and their issues and is voter turnout among naturalized u.s citizens generally higher the same or lower than for the native-born u.s citizen population well it used to be thought that it was uh, lower that immigrants had less resources it was thought that immigrants had less psychological investment in the country that they were slower to get involved and to participate and there was data supporting that for decades Now what we're finding in both the Latino and Asian American community is that immigrants are engaged and participating at higher rates oftentimes than their U.S.-born counterparts. And so there is a sense of investment, of commitment, of this is your adopted country. This is the place that you decided. You made a decision to come and perhaps bring your family And now you're seeing as an immigrant, as a naturalized citizen, you're seeing how much of the political rhetoric is attacking you or is targeting you. And so that has been associated with increased participation. And we're seeing that in many, many states where immigrants are being attacked or being scapegoated. They're responding with higher levels of political engagement. Now, we're also seeing that transfer down into the second generation, into the people who are born in the U.S., but their parents are immigrants. And in particular, a group who has fairly high political engagement, both through social movements and voting, are those who might have parents who are undocumented. So the parents don't even have a chance to become citizens and to vote. And so these U.S. citizen, U.S.-born children, we're finding, especially over the last 10 years, are very engaged and very involved in wanting to vote and make their voice heard, not only for themselves, but for their parents. And so we sort of think of that as the whole immigrant community, the immigrants themselves, the naturalized citizens, but then there are other immigrants and children of immigrants. And in the Latino community, they have been extremely engaged, as I say, over the last 10 years, as immigration has been thrust onto the national debate. And so they have high rates of voting now. That's very different than how it used to be 20, 30 years ago, where immigrants were seen as being more on the sidelines. And so we have to update our theories as social scientists. Is this episodic? Is it going to go away? Or is this a new norm in a much more multicultural, diverse America that immigrants are sort of leading the way sometimes? And do you see parallels and differences between that Latino political engagement and the Asian American community? There are definite parallels, and then there's places where there are divergence. The Asian American community is much more heavily immigrant than the Latino community. That sometimes comes as a a shock, probably not your listeners who are already attuned. But Latinos are often painted as immigrants, as undocumented immigrants. But Asian Americans are almost twice as high in terms of being immigrant than the Latino community. Now that's changing. 
as uh, younger Asian Americans are U.S. born and changing their own demographics. So we do see some divergence there. And Asian American immigrants had not been as involved in the immigrant rights movement historically. But now we're seeing more coming together. We're seeing Korean American groups, Vietnamese Americans who historically had been more conservative and Republican because of the history of American intervention in their country. They're moving over and they're looking at politics differently. So you're starting to see that growth, I'd say, to match some of what has been in the Latino community for a longer time. But the Latino community is now growing overwhelmingly by U.S. born young Latinos turning 18 and growing our voting age population. So the longer this continues, it's going to be, as I said, that second generation, the generation that is the children of immigrants. They're really taking over our demographics in the Latino community. It will be interesting to see how they navigate the political system and what their issues are. Will immigration remain an issue? What if that gets resolved? There's this long debate. What if the Republicans just come along and say, okay, fine, let's pass immigration reform. Let's stop being hostile towards immigrants. Can we start to make inroads with some of these communities? Um, we don't know. They haven't done that yet, but that's certainly a possibility. You co-founded in 2018 the UCLA Voting Rights Project, and there's been much talk of the challenges of exercising voting rights right now in the context of the COVID-19 pandemic. Is this something that you see as having particular impacts on the political participation of racial and ethnic minorities in the U.S.? Definitely. I mean, there's no question that racial and ethnic minorities are looking at this issue, evaluating it, and it's impacting us. You can see that in the data. That's why we need to continue studying and collecting data on these issues and on these topics. The longer it goes on, the more data we have, the more clear it becomes that this is absolutely impacting these communities. And it's going to be an issue in this election. Then the question is, for how long? Do people forget? Do they change? Do they see the new candidate? I spoke about candidate-centered elections. So can a new candidate come along, change policy, change rhetoric, change the way they engage communities? The longer the problems go on, the longer that relationship is negative, the harder it is to repair. And so it, it seems that it's going to be an uphill battle, I would say. And what's the current state of play? Is it currently looking like postal ballots, some kind of online situation? It seems to be changing every day. Yeah, the way that people vote is different from state to state, but it also, as you said, appears to be changing from day to day or week to week. What we have found is that racial and ethnic minorities have lower rates of use of vote by mail. Um, they have less familiarity with it. They're more likely to vote in person on election day. And so as states change, and states are changing very quickly, they need to be doing that outreach. They need to be making sure that every potential voter in their community has a right to cast a ballot, knows how to cast a ballot. And as I was just saying, you know, when you have a tax on that, when you have a tax on the voting system, those attacks don't sit well. Those attacks start to raise questions. And so it's important for states. And here we're talking of secretaries of state, regardless of whether you're a Republican or Democrat or a county registrar of voters, because these elections are administered at the county level. Those folks have a responsibility and an obligation to cut through that noise, to do outreach, and to inform voters of how they can vote, why it's safe and secure. But what we're seeing is that there needs to be an understanding of making voting accessible. I'll give you an example from Georgia recently in their primary just this summer. About a week before the election, the Secretary of State decided to close 80 polling sites in Atlanta. 
Well, you can't do that. You can't close polling sites down, have hundreds of people show up when they're supposed to be social distancing, stand in long lines, potentially risk getting exposed to this health pandemic. I mean, we've never experienced this, but all of this is changing in real time right now, right before us. And it takes a lot of information to stick with it. If you're just an average person trying to take care of your family, trying to figure out if your kids are going to school online, you maybe haven't been keeping up with what's happening. You look up and your polling site is closed and it's too late to request an absentee ballot. That's going to be a very important question for our democracy this November is the manner in which people vote and which citizens are taking information and awareness of the different ways to vote and if that ends up impacting the elections. I think a lot of people are nervous about that right now and it's a very, very important topic to keep monitoring. Because of the pandemic, I just don't want to go into a polling place uh, where people are standing in line, where I'm dealing with people who could be infected, where I have to touch voting machines other people may have touched. So I'm very much in favor of the absentee voting this year, at least. The biggest risk that we have is mail-in ballots, because with the mail-in ballots, called universal mail-in ballots, it's much, it, it is a much easier thing for a foreign power it's much easier for them to forge ballots and send them in. It's much easier for them to cheat. Uh, it remains to be seen how his followers are going to take this. Uh, they have already been primed to believe that if he loses, this was an unfair election. So we've been doing a lot of work with the ACLU. I mean, people are probably very familiar with them, the American Civil Liberties Union. They've filed over 30 lawsuits against states that are trying to change election laws or close down polling places. And at the UCLA Voting Rights Project, we're working closely with the ACLU on a number of projects. There's also the Campaign Legal Center. There are two uh, organizations within the Mexican-American and African-American community, uh, the Mexican-American Legal Defense Fund, MALDEF, uh, the NAACP uh, Legal Defense Fund. Both of those groups are out on the forefront um, trying to make sure that people's voting rights are upheld. And it's important to support those groups and work with them and to ask those groups to continue fighting for the right to vote, regardless of the party of the governor, regardless of the party of the county election administrator, just to make sure that they are implementing elections. This should not be a partisan issue. Just everyone in the state should have access to a ballot, especially right now during a health pandemic. So it's something to keep paying attention to, and it's something we're going to keep paying attention to, especially through the lens of race, ethnicity, immigration status, to make sure that those voters have a full and equal place at the table. I was just quite interested in kind of thinking about some of the historical precedents for this kind of voter, I don't know if the word is voter suppression or obstacles being put in the way of certain communities voting. Oh, there's no doubt. I mean, the United States, for all of the celebration of democracy, has also had a long history of excluding people from the right to vote. I mean, we're celebrating the 100-year anniversary of women having the right to vote. 50% of the population who, for the first 150 years or so of America as a, as a place, did not have the right to vote. African Americans did not receive the full right to vote until the Voting Rights Act of 1965. Latinos were not covered by the Voting Rights Act until 1975. I mean, you're talking about access to power. Who gets to make the laws and distribute power? And so there has been a long history of excluding people and groups, civil rights groups, and just everyday citizens have had to fight so they can cast a ballot. And so it's not surprising when we see this, when we saw the increase in voter identification laws about 10 years ago, that was about trying to exclude people if they perhaps weren't of a high enough socioeconomic status that they had all of this documentation and different things. And it's continuing. 
as you look at poll closings, as you look at new barriers that are being put up, more often than not, that is to exclude people who current people in power don't agree with. And sometimes those parties change and sometimes the people in power change. Our hope is that everyone has a right to vote and has access to the ballot and equal access. You don't want to put up burdens and say, okay, this person over here can vote, but they have to go through this 14 obstacle course. And after they complete all of those, they still have to do these other things. This other person over here can just cast a ballot however they want. I mean, when you see those sorts of systems in place, that is inequality. And we have a lot of inequality in this country, but we should not have inequality when it comes to voting. Our hope is that more people will take up this fight and will pay close attention to this. And if you have the right to vote and if you have an opportunity to vote, to make sure that you are engaging the political system at as high a rate as you can. As a social scientist myself, as somebody who's very engaged in European and British politics, you know, how we manage that balance sometimes between being supposedly impartial and uh, political advocacy and engagement. And I know you're currently employed by the Joe Biden campaign to direct polling and focus group research for Latino voters. What is your personal feeling on kind of being an academic and also working for one specific political party? How does that land? And, and are there any challenges as well as opportunities with that? You know, for us, it started by just doing good research on what motivated Latinos. So if you look back at, you know, the first few years of my career as a professor, I was just writing about what motivated Latinos to vote. Why did they vote at high rates in some elections and low rates in others? What issues motivated them? What messages? And out of that, we realized that there was a void in the political consulting apparatus, that there was not a dedicated set of consultants collecting data on Latinos and making that data available to campaigns. And so Gary and I, we started with solid social science research. That's what we were interested in. And then we found a way to share that information you know, with interested parties. Now, it just so happens with the way that the current political system in the United States is arranged, that democratic organization and more democratic candidates were far more eager to listen to those messages, to learn from those messages. But it didn't change any of the research we're doing. We're still asking the same questions. We're still doing our surveys and our analysis from the same rigorous social science lens. You can't be doing sloppy work and be advising a, a presidential campaign. And so I think as long as you are true to the research questions you're asking, the methodology in particular, that you're, you're not trying to spin things, that you're just committed to the social science, you know, it's fine for that to find its way into the political world. And it should be. That's what we hope for. We don't want to just write articles that uh, sit on a uh, library bookshelf. So that's how we approach it. You know, we always make sure there's a commitment to the rigor of the social science, to the cultural competency that we're approaching the Latino community from that perspective. And if other people in the world are interested in ideas, I think we should be happy about that and we should pursue that. And I think more social scientists today are doing that. You're seeing much more of that uh, making its way into the public stream. But so uh, you weren't behind the messaging that led to Trump and Ivanka's Goya bean photo shoot then, I'm assuming. <laughs> Somebody else advised him on that, but we did do research on, uh, <laughs> on the other side of it. Would you accept a commission from the Trump campaign to look at Latino voters and do research? I don't think that the Trump campaign specifically has any interest in commissioning work from any social scientist, even Republican social scientists. They're not interested in social science. Trump runs things just from his gut and his Twitter account, and he can take that pretty far. 
we did work with bipartisan groups in 2013 when we were trying to get an immigration bill passed. We did a lot of polling and research for people who were committed to trying to get a uh, immigration bill passed. And that did include a handful of Republicans uh, who were interested in trying to see an immigration bill passed in 2013. And so those people would come to us and ask us questions and they didn't always like the answers. Um, we're just reporting the data. That's the way we look at it. It so happens because of politics, by about a three to one margin or so, Latinos prefer Democratic candidates today. You know, the advice to the Republican Party would be change your tactics, take a more welcoming approach, and maybe those data will start to change. But we never sort of see ourselves as, you know, trying to change facts or spin data to fit a narrative. Rather, if we can give campaigns reliable and accurate information about the Latino community, then they can act upon that to try and activate mobilizing messages, messages that resonate, messages that just make sense in the Latino community, things that people would want to hear. So we try to help them do that. And then, you know, the candidates still have to stand up on their own and have a policy and a story that voters want to respond to. I mean, the hardest thing to do is doing public opinion is not hard. Trying to predict which, you know, 132 million people are going to show up and cast a ballot out of a pool of 180 million is difficult. And so it not only takes writing a good survey, but you have to really have care over trying to make sure you're picking people who are actually going to show up as voters. I think voters have, have been sort of disguising themselves and trying to hide from pollsters over the last decade or so. And so it has made pollsters' jobs harder uh, to try and predict election outcomes when uh, someone who doesn't have the characteristics of a high propensity voter fools us and shows up on election day with you know 20 of their friends and casts a ballot in a way that people weren't expecting. So <laughs> getting those, what we call the likely voter models right, is a big challenge. So I won't ask you for any kind of predictions then for the upcoming election, because it sounds like that's tempting fate and probably too early days. Yeah, we have to talk about it on November 4th. Okay. So today we're also thrilled to have with us voting expert Janelle Wong. Janelle is Professor of American Studies at the University of Maryland, and she's a core faculty member in its Asian American Studies program. Janelle is the author of Democracy's Promise, Immigrants and American Civic Institutions, and she's co-author of two other books on Asian American politics. The most recent is Asian American Political Participation, Emerging Constituents and Their Political Identities. This was based on the first ever national multilingual, multi-ethnic survey of Asian Americans. She is a co-principal investigator of the 2016 National Asian American Survey, a nationwide survey of Asian American political and social attitudes. Her current research is on the growing number of Latino and Asian American evangelicals and their role in US politics. Janelle works with Matt on the CNPS, the Collaborative Multiracial Post-Election Survey. So if you're wondering what that is, Janelle, perhaps you could tell us a bit more. So the CMPS is a collaborative survey that includes large samples of Black, Latinx, Asian American, and now other groups like Muslim Americans, um, an LGBT sample, African immigrants, Afro-Caribbean immigrants, Native American populations. We're also aiming for Native Hawaiian populations. So this is a survey that tries to capture a large enough sample of groups that are historically excluded or underrepresented in surveys so that we can 
have a sense of the full picture of American public opinion. And are there any particular trends that you're finding from these different groups that differ from the rest of the U.S. population? So we also have a sample of white Americans. One of the things that really separates and is distinct about people of color in the U.S. is that they are much more supportive of government programs, a strong role for a social safety net compared to white Americans. And that, I think, is something that is often overlooked, especially among, let's say, Asian Americans. Asian Americans as a whole are a group that have, you know, high levels of educational attainment in the aggregate, high levels of income in the aggregate. And yet that group is still much more like Blacks and Latinx people than white Americans. And so we can sort of see in our survey the kind of bases for coalition building among people of color and, of course, progressive whites through these kind of data. What happened with the, I guess we can call it the immigrant vote in the last election, and how do you see that changing this time? Being critical to understanding the immigrant vote is that a third of the immigrant vote is Latino, a third of the immigrant vote is Asian American, and the majority of naturalized citizens who are eligible to vote are Asian American. And so, you know, we often think about immigrants in the U.S. as being primarily Latino, and the majority are Latino, but it's also important to know that the majority of Latinos in the U.S. are not immigrants. So, That's something that I think people have yet to get their heads around, that because of historic immigration, Latinos do make up the majority of immigrants, but most Latinos are not themselves immigrants, but most Asian Americans are immigrants. And that is becoming, I think, an increasingly important part of the immigrant vote. And Asian Americans often, I think, are misunderstood in the political system. And so, for instance, In 2012, exit polls, which aren't perfect, of course, showed that by a few percentage points more than Latinos, Asian Americans supported Barack Obama over his Republican challenger. And so I think it's important to pay attention to the diversity of the immigrant vote. The immigrant vote is leaning Democrat. Um, I think it's not a consolidated block necessarily. There's still a large number of people who have not committed to one of the two major parties in that immigrant vote. And so it's also an important swing vote or persuadable voter population in the U.S. In terms of how I'm defining the immigrant vote, I'm talking about first-generation voters who are naturalized citizens. And I'm wondering in the context of COVID and this rising xenophobia, if you could say something about how that's impacting Asian American political participation generally. Well, Asian Americans still comprise 4% of the electorate. And so when it comes to electoral politics, it's a group that has influence really in areas of concentration. So in California, and increasingly in swing states like North Carolina, Florida, Pennsylvania, we see Asian Americans comprising, you know, about four to 10 to 15% of eligible voters in those areas. To your question about how the current political context matters, we're in the field right now with our surveys. One of the things that seems to be happening is that there is a way in which the comments made by Trump about the China virus, about blaming Chinese and using derogatory terms like the Kung flu for coronavirus actually has translated into a general anti-Asian bias in the population. So we see that those who are experiencing hate crimes in the wake of these remarks 
tend to be not only Chinese, who he's explicitly called out, China, of course, but you know, Burmese, other East Asian people in the US, that anti-Asian bias affects all of our communities and may in fact create a stronger sense of pan-Asian American identity, which then is kind of parallel to, or maybe reinforces the formation of an Asian American voting bloc. There is a kind of consolidation around an Asian American, a set of Asian American experiences and public opinion reflects this as well. And what are the core issues that impact on their voting and their political engagement? So this is, I think, a really interesting kind of way in which polling matters. Let me explain it like this. Most people, I think, when they consider the Asian American vote, and this includes campaigns, they're fully focused on, even subconsciously or implicitly, they're thinking about Asian Americans in terms of two kind of dominant stereotypes or tropes. The first is the model minority, and that assumes that Asian Americans are interested most in education. And there's a lot to unpack there, but I think there's this assumption that Asian Americans have a cultural value for education. And this, of course, is very dangerous because all groups have a cultural value for education. Asian Americans come to the U.S. with high levels of education much higher than the people who have stayed in their countries of origin. The other trope is the forever foreigner stereotype. And that's what we see with COVID, where people assume that Asian Americans are, you know, somehow other, somehow outside the U.S. citizenry. And they then say, well, either we can reach out to Asian Americans based on education, let's emphasize education in our campaign ads, or let's emphasize immigration, because the majority, of course, are immigrants. But what we see from polling is that the issues on which Asian Americans tend to be most distinct from the U.S. population are healthcare, gun control, redistributive economic policies, like taxing the wealthy to give the middle class a tax break, and the environment. On all four of those issues, Asian Americans are much more progressive than the general U.S. population. And you're also the author of Immigrants, Evangelicals and Politics in an Era of Demographic Change that was published in 2018. What's the evangelical link here? So I became really interested in studying evangelicals, not because I'm evangelical myself, but because I had written a book on lots of different civic organizations and ethnic organizations prior to this book. And I realized I had totally neglected the largest ethnic organizations in our communities, especially in immigrant communities, which are evangelical churches. And I wondered how these organizations and people's involvement in evangelical churches, especially immigrants' involvement, was going to affect their politics going into the future. And what I found is that evangelicals of color, so I looked at Black, Asian American, and Latinx evangelicals, tend to be more conservative on especially issues like abortion and same-sex marriage than their non-evangelical co-ethnic counterparts, but they are much different than white evangelicals. So no evangelical group that I studied, and I used the CMPS, which had over 10,000 respondents, no Asian American or evangelical group, no one who identified as evangelical in those communities, those groups did not vote a majority for Trump, whereas white evangelicals were among Trump's staunchest supporters. And so there's a political divide in evangelical America 
and it has to do with both immigration and race. People of color and immigrants of color in the evangelical community look very different from white evangelicals. People don't want to answer survey questions. They don't want to answer telephone or emails or outreach on surveys, but surveys are a way to really uplift the voices of everyday people. And as a scholar, that's what I'm interested in, regardless of whether those voices align with my own voice. I have other platforms that aren't based on my research to do advocacy work, but in terms of research, I think we just really want to know, and I think it's critically important, what every segment of the U.S. population cares about, prioritizes, and it's a fascinating question about how they will participate and whether they are being mobilized to participate, and eventually how these groups will come to define, help define the direction of U.S. politics. Asian American voters have long been voters that have been voting by mail and absentee. That has been one of the dominant ways in which they have participated in voting. So I think any attempts to undermine confidence in the electoral system could have a negative effect. It also demands more community education, especially Asian American communities that are not English dominant. And then that has a kind of spillover effect in terms of requiring more resources for in-language materials and educational content. These groups are coming of political age. And if you at home are interested in this topic of coming of age politically, do check out the second episode in this series, Youth Memoirs Growing Up Undocumented. We've rightly talked a lot today about Latino voters and the Asian American vote. And speaking of the dominant language, If you speak Spanish, Mandarin, Korean, or other languages, the Board of Elections are hiring interpreters. You can make a real difference in not just reaching out to these communities, but by being there in person on Election Day. Our producer, Sharon, is one of the Mandarin interpreters for the New York Board of Elections. Ready to help America vote? Working the polls on Election Day is a great way to strengthen our democracy right in your own community. Poll workers set up polling places, check in voters and answer questions, and show us how to use voting machines. It's important. Any voter can file an application to become a poll worker, and most poll workers get paid. September 1st is National Poll Worker Recruitment Day, because right now America needs more election workers to volunteer. Learn more at helpamericavote.gov. Democracy obviously isn't just about voting. It's about representation, activism, showing up for everyday actions and acts of kindness to your neighbours. But September the 1st is coming up. So if you care about immigration and democracy, why not sign up to work as an interpreter or poll worker? And don't forget to vote. People who have had the privilege to, you know, be able to vote their entire life and then choose not to is um, a little frustrating for me. You shouldn't take your voting rights for granted. What? B-O-T-E, it's time to vote. If you liked today's conversation, please share it with a friend, give us a rating or a review. 
You can send us your comments and questions on Twitter at the handle IIH underscore Harvard. This show was made possible by the Immigration Initiative at Harvard University. It was produced by Ziran Wang and Jennifer Alsop. Music by Ziran Wang. Special thanks to our guests, Matt Barreto and Janelle Wong. And thank you for tuning in.